Thanks for listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos and the PCC Multiverse. Check out more great podcasts today on one of these awesome affiliate networks. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. The Tangibound Network. Check it out. Tangiboundnetwork.com. Listen to this show, the latest episode, every time. A proud member of the Good and Geek Network. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other geeky podcasts over at gunnageeknetwork.com and get ready because geekiness begins in 3, 2, 1. On this week's episode, it's once upon a time for Tarantino at the box office. We're going grunge music and could the boys be the next anti-hero hit for Amazon? All this and more as we once again delve into... The Pop Culture Cosmos. Welcome to the Pop Culture Cosmos. And we're back with another episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos. My name is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. We truly appreciate everyone out there listening to all of our great programs. But it wouldn't be a Pop Culture Cosmos without my good friend returning after a long hiatus searching somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, it is our Bigfoot Hunter of Pop Culture Cosmos. You got to check out Pop Culture Cosmos today on popculturecosmos.com, Pop Culture Cosmos on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and so much more. It is my good friend. It is Josh Peterson. Thank God you're back, my friend. Praise. The pop culture gods. Hey, Matt, did you find Bigfoot? No, I actually... Uh, so it, it's weird because I went out there and I did not know that that was such a big deal out there. They they have Sasquatch at pretty much every store you go to. Like, you can buy t-shirts, books. They have field guides on how to track down Sasquatch. You can buy little, little whistles that make Sasquatch mating sounds. How they know what sounds those are, I don't know. But they take that pretty serious out there. They're like clearance duck whistles. Pretty much, but there's buttons on them, so you have to pick like which you know which one you want to do. Okay, fair enough. You know what? This would sound crazy normally, but then again, in September, we're going to have to remind each other about Area 51 and how everybody's going to storm that and probably end up buying alien t-shirts anyway. So you know what? It's just our weird society as it is. And then we'll cue the uh, REM song into the world like an Independence Day. Exactly, exactly. But I do want to thank, once again, Ben Arnault for stopping by on last week's Pop Culture Cosmos to talk San Diego Comic-Con with me. Just truly appreciate him taking the time to do so. I do have Marcus Sally from Popcorn Prattle. He's talking some Tarantino, and we're going to be talking a lot of great things, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm going to be going ahead and sharing my thoughts on it. I've seen it. And I'm going to share a little bit of spoiler action on it, so I will tell you when that's upcoming. But I do want to tell you exactly what I thought of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Quentin Tarantino, his ninth film. Plus, also as well, we're going to be talking later on in the episode about the new Amazon series, The Boys. Yes, this is another anti-hero, superhero type, type show that is on another streaming service. This time it's Amazon Prime. So we're going to go ahead in detail as far as 
our thoughts on what we're hoping for, what type of words out in the street about it already, and our hopes about the boys coming up later in the program. Plus, Josh has got some more thoughts as well that he wants to share. But you know what, my friend? Speaking of the Pacific Northwest, yeah, I know you wanted to talk to me about something up there because there's also, you know, besides Sasquatch, there's a lot of other great influence as well. Yeah, so I, I got a chance to mosey on over to the uh, pop culture museum. What was it's called the uh, or Museum of Pop Culture? It's called. Yeah, it was. Is there's a lot of cool stuff in there. They actually have some of the. Is it owned by Funko? Is it? I don't know. It, I it, it, it probably they have a lot of Funko products in there, so it, it, that's that's a definitely a good possibility. But no, it's just interesting. They have a, and I'll get to the specific thing I want to talk about in a minute. But you go down in there and they have like the some of the props from old horror movies they have stuff from walking dead they had the original suit from alien and, you know you can see some of the props from hostel texas chainsaw massacre and then you go into this other room and they have all the sci-fi stuff in there so you have the costumes from the fifth element some of the costumes from blade runner uh you, the t2000 is that the terminator t2000 and just before you go on Rest in peace, Rutger Hauer. Rest in oh peace. Oh my Rutger god. Hauer. Yeah, that was actually really sad. But yeah, they have all those props. And then they have a you go further down into the exhibit and they have a case that just has all of the guns from all these famous sci-fi movies. So they had stuff from Men in Black, stuff from Star Wars, stuff from Star Trek, stuff from The Matrix. It, it, there's all kinds of cool stuff down there. So if you get a chance, definitely go check it out. You can see props from Dune. There's a little interactive thing where you get to try to park a Star Destroyer, which is cool. So th- there's definitely a lot of a lot of really cool stuff, and it's it's cool to see that people are willing to donate these items so that you know people could go there and kind of learn about them and you know read read up on the the history of of some of these great films. What was really cool to me though, and my question this is going to be my question to you: they their whole second floor it's all music, right? So they have you go in first thing you do there's a big screen, but you go in and the first thing on your right you see Jimi Hendrix, you see a whole display dedicated to Jimi Hendrix. You go further on and it's a, there's a Nirvana one. So in the Nirvana one, they credit Nirvana with starting the grunge movement and starting grunge as, as a whole, grunge rock. And then there's a, there's a Pearl Jam exhibit and it, it just, it makes me wonder, I wanted to talk to you about this. I want to ask your thoughts. Because I'm old enough to remember. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I started listening to music around when Nevermind came out, but it's, interesting to me because we have this dilemma right like the whole beatles versus rolling stones who was in america first who did this kind of music first who's responsible for the british invasion and we have this same thing kind of bleeding over into grunge because if you look at it soundgarden's first album came out in 1987 and i think that they are the pinnacle of grunge because chris cornell also started pearl jam back when they were called mookie blaylock and they were asked to change their name because of uh I guess Mookie Blaylock's name was copyrighted back then. So funny. They go through it back then. We go through it now. Right, right. So, I mean, and you, you look at, there's a bunch of other bands, though, too. You have Sonic Youth. You have Soundgarden, the Vaselines, the Melvins. You have Candlebox. You have Allison Chains. There's, there's all these grunge bands from Seattle back then. And Nirvana is the one that's credited with starting grunge rock. But Bleach had a couple grungy songs, but it was mostly a punk album. And so is Insecticide. So I want to ask you this. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think Nirvana started the grunge movement or do you think they're just the ones that got their name attached to it? 
what got grunge over to be enough to the point where it was called grunge, where grunge became a household word, where yeah. it became something that was in the consciousness of a mass, large, worldwide audience. And there's no better way to say it than it smells like teen spirit because of that video, because of Kurt Cobain, whatever charisma that you want to say he has, whatever you want to say or describe how Kurt Cobain was during that period of time, it just people were drawn to him. They saw him as this mysterious figure. The music was infectious. And it, it starts for virtually everybody at Smells Like Teen Spirit. But again, if you are if you were in the Seattle area at that time or in other spots as well as other bands from the grunge era started playing, yeah, of course, you're going to say it started maybe late 80s, things of that nature. But to the mass audience, you cannot say it will start other than Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nirvana's Nevermind. Yeah, because I mean, they that album did change the way a lot of radio stations operated and the way MTV operated. Because they were still doing a lot of poppy songs, songs that were using heavy synthesizer. Mm -hmm. Only a couple bands from the heavy metal side, like or hard rock side, like Def Leppard and a couple others that were playing. I don't want to say like pop rock, but rock that had a good enough sound that would translate to a pop audience. They were the only bands that with a heavy guitar mode that could really translate to a top 40 audience. Then Nirvana comes on and it's all guitar and it takes off like a rocket from there. Yeah. They opened the door. Okay. Anybody else tells me otherwise, I'm going to disagree with them because if you tell me that Pearl Jam or, or Soundgarden or anybody else opens the door, you're wrong because it all started off with Nirvana opening the door with that huge hit smells like teen spirit and the album. Never mind. the Beatles movement. Let's start that. Do you want to say it's when they first started playing in clubs? Yeah. You can say the Beatles movement started there and you had some fans, things of that nature, but it's not until they started producing studio albums that they started to really take off. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And then, you know, and that goes back to, there's a whole other argument to be had there. I mean, do you want to say that's when Beatlemania started when they, when their albums started to take off or do you want to say Beatlemania started when they started playing their songs in the club, when they got together? There had to have been something there when they were playing the songs in the club, if people wanted them to keep playing the songs in the club. Uh, you're going back and forth on this, man. Beatlemania did not really start in, you know, when Pete Best was playing or anything like that. Beatlemania started when they started charting on the actual radio, on the charts, both here in the States and obviously around the world. So, you know, that's, again, it's just, you know, when do you want to say the grunge movie? I mean, technically, you're right. It could have started when whoever band in the garage in Seattle started first. Okay, that's that's what technically you could say that. But I'm going to tell you, for many people, the grunge movement started much later than that in 1991. That's my deal. All right. So that's our thoughts on the grunge movement. If you want to talk about music, on whether it's the grunge movement, when it actually started, in your opinion, or also Beatlemania as well. You know, we brought that up. PopCultureCosmos at Yahoo.com. PopCultureCosmos on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as well. Josh, you know, if you're a man of technicalities, you, you want to read between the lines, I got to give it to you. We'll give, the, we'll give this round to Josh Peterson on that one. All right. One to zero, all right, right. It makes up for not finding Bigfoot. But there's a lot of great things to talk about because this weekend it was a successful one for Quentin Tarantino. He debuted his new movie, his ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, at the theaters this weekend. 
in the United States, it garnered just about $40 million, which ekes out over Inglorious Bastards. It is now his biggest opening ever as a filmmaker, and I'm, I'm happy for him. I did get a chance to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I can tell you, well, first off, I'll, I'll cut right to the point. It's a good film. And before we go into any spoilers or anything of that nature, I just want to say it is a good film. And if you are a Tarantino fan, it's a little different Tarantino film. It doesn't play by all his normal Tarantino rules, some of it for the good, some of it for the worse. But you know what? It is a film that I think a lot of people will enjoy. It is a little long. There is a lot of filler that could have been cut out, in my opinion. But you know what? Overall, I think it was a good experience. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Is it his best? I was sending messages back and forth to Josh on my opinion on it. I would probably put it right now in his nine film library, about fourth or fifth would probably be my estimation. Did you have any questions you wanted to ask me on it? Okay, so set set the scene for me here because there's been a lot of movies centering around the Manson murders. Okay, so set the scene up for me here. What makes this movie stand out above everything else that's been done so far? I don't want to say it stands out above all the rest. I mean, for me, this is a movie that is set between the months of February and then again, it goes into August of 1969, right around the fateful night of the Sharon Tate murder and also all the other murders that were taking place at the hands of the individuals that were following Charles Manson at that point in time. Whenever it dealt with the Manson family and that whole deal as far as outside of the actual night in question, any time that they go ahead and delve into that, it's boring, and it makes you want to go ahead and fast-forward it. There's a scene which a lot of critics seem to like that builds up the tension that involves Brad Pitt and the Manson followers, and I couldn't get into it. I will tell you that the reason why I liked it so much are two reasons, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Brad Pitt, this is one of his best performances of his life. He just did a great job in the film. I think he really, really had a lot of great comedic timing, but also some some real good active chops. And Leonardo DiCaprio, this is one of my top three favorite performances from him. He's an actor who, who you know, his star is fading as far as a top leaning man in Hollywood. And somehow he's still able to go ahead and, and try and get through, even though he's he's breaking down emotionally, he's becoming an alcoholic, he's He's got the stammer. He's got the, all these health issues that are subtly portrayed throughout the film. And it just, it to me, those two performances, the way they interact with each other is really, really strong. I think this is a great film for both of them. And it's a great performance. And I think this is what carries the film. It didn't feel like a Quentin Tarantino movie until the last 20 minutes. Once it gets into the last 20 minutes, oh boy, all heck runs loose. And Quentin Tarantino goes wild and crazy once again. That made for a, a you know very interesting ending, I will say. It is his spin on that night in question. I think a lot of people will be surprised how it plays out. And I think a lot of people will be amused by it. I think a lot of other people will be shocked by it. But it is Tarantino nonetheless. And like I said, this wasn't your basic Tarantino film of other things that he's done in the past in many ways for most of the film. But once it comes to that last 20 minutes or so, that's right on par with what Tarantino has done. And also anytime it dealt within the framework of Hollywood, 
like the making of a television show, the making of a movie or anything of that nature, especially when it concerns DiCaprio and how he is working as an actor during cuts, during scenes, his problems, his issues as far as off camera and things of that nature, his problems on camera, his issues, his concerns, and then ultimately the way he brings himself out and brings the best out of him as far as an actor, that truly is great stuff right there. And also the references and constant reminders of the year 1969 or the late 1960s as far as television shows, movies, and also the imagery of Hollywood itself during that period of time. For me, it's very sentimental because as I've told you before, my friend, I was in diapers at that point in time. So it's just interesting because I was in Southern California in diapers at that point in time. So it's interesting to see how it might have looked during 1969 in that era as it was changing from one era of Hollywood to another in the 70s. So for me, like I said, it's a good film. Could have been a really, really good or great film, but there were things holding it back. And last but not least, I know there's been a lot of controversy about Margot Robbie's role as Sharon Tate. I will say that his latest interview with time he did say that he just wanted to portray sharon tate as just having a normal day and in this movie she does that but that's going to disappoint a lot of people i didn't say she did bad i didn't say she did good she just wasn't given much to do in the film and i think that's going to make a lot of people mad because the fact she's right there on the bill on the marquee with pitt and dicaprio and robbie it's all up there had she been put as far as a name, maybe with Al Pacino or anybody else as far as being a co-star or guest star and that she's just going to be in it for a little bit, then that's fine. But if she was put in a top billing, a lot of people are going to expect her to be a great portion of this movie, and she's not. Okay, so I, I'm, just, I'm curious about this movie because I didn't really give much away in the trailers. Is this more about Hollywood back then or is it more about the Manson family? The first two-thirds of it deals more with the Hollywood-era part of it. It deals more with the changing dynamics of Hollywood. But that last part where it does deal with the actual night in question of the Manson murders and Sharon Tate and all that, that has got to be seen. And that's just it's just wild. It is just wild. To me, it just seemed like a, like a love letter to uh, Hollywood-era gone by. Oh, and one last thing. The way Bruce Lee was characterized, I was not happy with. I'm going to be one of those that said Bruce Lee was not treated properly in this film. Okay, so last question. Gerald's recommendation, yay or nay? It's going to be yay, but again, it is something that could have been a half hour shorter and it could have been a whole lot better. But if you're going to grade on a scale from 1 to 10, I'd probably get it right now about a 7.5. I think the performances are outstanding between Pitt and DiCaprio. And for that reason alone, you got to watch the movie. And again, like I said, there are other many issues with it that I have, which holds this up from being one of the best Tarantino films. This could have been very easily. And at times, this is some of his best work ever. But unfortunately, it's just not even. It's just not consistent. And there's a lot of things that let you down until it brings you back up with an ending but it doesn't you know even with an outstanding ending that a lot of people were very satisfied with it just doesn't bring you back all the way up to say hey this was a great movie if you have a question about once upon a time in hollywood 
if you want to talk about it, if you've seen it and share your thoughts on it, you disagree with me or or hopefully one day when Josh sees it by the end of the year, because we, that's one of the movies I think he's going to go have to go ahead and see. Let us know how you feel about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, PopCultureCosmos at Yahoo.com, or give us a shout out on PopCultureCosmos on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube as well. Before we talk about the boys coming back later in the show and also some other stuff that you want to talk about as well, I do want to bring on our guest coming up right after break. It's Marcus Sally from Popcorn Prattle. He's talking some Tarantino, some great talk about the filmography of Quentin Tarantino, what it has appealed to him. You're going to hear his thoughts on Tarantino's film coming up right after the break. This is the Pop Culture Cosmos. Listen up, all you gamers out there. Miracle Fruit Oil is ramping up the deals on its awesome Vitabrace gaming wristband. Vitabrace is clinically proven to help improve your gaming performance. Vitabrace will help you achieve your gaming goals, whether it's that single-player campaign, retro classic, or battle royale. Head on over today to MiracleFruitOil.com, and if you use the code Vitabrace50, you'll get half off on a Vitabrace gaming wristband, or use the code buy one get one, and it's buy one get one free. That's right, just use the code Vitabrace50 or buy and the number one get and the number one today to get some great deals on some Vitabrace gaming wristbands. So check it out today at MiracleFruitOil.com. Vitabrace, win with it. All right, and we're back with the program. It's Gerald coming right back at you once again, talking some more Quentin Tarantino. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is at the theaters. It's it's Tarantino once again, just running wild all over the place in this latest film, the ninth film in his illustrious career. And there's so much to unpack when it concerns Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it is definitely something that people are talking about. And it is something that, while it's not going to garner the type of money that The Lion King is going to do, here's hoping that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to still be a success for him and his fans, and, and it's going to be everything that they hope for. But we are talking Tarantino and his background and his history and, and what we might think might be his future. And here again today with me for talking some more Tarantino is a great podcaster indeed. If you haven't checked out his show, Popcorn Prattle, yet, you have to check it out because it is something worth checking into. If you're into movies and talking about all the great things that are going on there, you got to check it out today on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and so many other podcast outlets. It is a great man indeed. It is Marcus Sally. Marcus, great to have you on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> I could be talking about Quentin Tarantino today. Oh, yes. Tarantino, he is definitely someone who will leave just a storied history, a style all of his own that no one else has seemed to duplicate. And that's good that he's had such original work that he's willing to push the boundaries of what filmmaking is all about, whether it's good, you know, people don't like it, whether people do like it, he doesn't rub everybody the right way, but you know what, at least it's something that he's doing originally that, you know, people can go out there and check out. But I want to know, Marcus, your thoughts on your background, you know, your memories on exactly when you first saw Quentin Tarantino's work and over the years, what has it been like as an experience as a film goer for you? I think my first 
kind of introduction to Quentin Tarantino was Kill Bill. I I had known about Quentin Tarantino before. I didn't really I was it was at a time when I didn't really understand his style. But I remember I was in high school and Kill Bill Volume One had come out. And I saw it with my dad and I just thought like, man, this is the coolest movie I have ever seen. It was so different. The style was was just, you know, something that I never really, really seen before, you know, at a time when I think this was, you know, early days superhero movie. So, I mean, that was kind of like my, in my, you know, teenage brain, that was my gold standard. So to see something like Kill Bill Volume One, that was to me, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta learn more about Quentin Tarantino. You know, obviously saw volume two. Then when I heard that he was working with Sin City, I was like, okay, like, I, like, I, I, I feel like I might like this guy. And then that's when I got to college and my friend, we had a Tarantino marathon. Well, we had like a Mel Brooks marathon and it like devolved into a, a Tarantino marathon. What a contrast right there from Mel right? Brooks and Tarantino. <laughs> from a guy who, who will go from total satire to someone yeah. who will go to total seriousness. Yes, right, right. So I I would I I got more into him in this marathon. You know, we watched Pulp Fiction, we watched Reservoir Dogs, and then that was around the time of Inglorious Bastards, which uh, I mean, just absolutely incredible storytelling in that. And that's, I think that's what really grabbed me was the fact that he was such a masterful storyteller and he just has this ability that, you know, cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a big Shakespearean actor as well. And with Shakespeare, that that's the thing I love about it is that he can just get you so invested in his words and Tarantino, he does the exact same thing. You know, he has that that beautiful scene. I, I mean, I know we're probably going to talk about favorite scenes later, but he has that beautiful scene in *Inglorious Bastards* when they're in the uh, when they're trying to figure out the, uh, the 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 big twist, right? Right before they go to the movie theater, that Hitler's going to be there, and you just you're on the edge of your seat the entire time, just wondering like, are the Nazis going to figure them out? And then when they do. You know, you as the audience, you're like, no, and, but there's not a lot of action in that scene. It's a lot. It's it's very much just dialogue driven. And I feel like that's only a few only a few directors can do that. You know, you look at Alfred Hitchcock. He can do that. Martin Scorsese can do that. But I don't think anybody can really do it like Tarantino, because he will literally have you sitting there for, you know, I think that scene's like, what, 10, 12 minutes? And there's no action, nothing. It's just a couple of people talking, even right up to the shootout. And the shootout's not even that long. <laughs> you know, his dialogue, like you said, is his key. That's his, that's his benchmark. Yeah, he does have some great visionary styles from moment to moment, I think, from time mm-hmm. to time. But with him, I think that he will leave his lasting mark with dialogue and script writing because... Some of the lines, obviously, in Pulp Fiction, that's mm-hmm. really, to me, when it came about. I did see Reservoir Dogs later on, and, and there's a lot of great stuff there, too, as well. But, yes, you know, as far as what I think will keep going on and on and on is his script writing and how he goes ahead and lays such an importance on dialogue and two characters. Like you said, having longer scenes, just talking, just mm-hmm. relating, whether it's exposition or whether it's just 
shooting the breeze. Yeah. You know, like, you know, you've seen in Pulp Fiction talking about McDonald's in France and all that. So, you know, <laughs> you know, that dialogue alone, does it really need to be there? No, it didn't need to be there, but it right. helps create that whole type of, of ambiance. And he's so skilled at it. Yes, like he does have some great shots. You know, if you mentioned Inglorious Bastards, the opening scene where they're going outside the cabin once once they've realized what's going on and and yeah. uh, Christoph Waltz finds out it, you see her running away, you see those scenic shots and things of that nature from the cabin. I mean, those type of imagery, uh, you know, and, and so many others that he's used, that's they're great, but it is his dialogue that I think yeah. we will put him down as one of the greats of all time. Mm-hmm. And especially in like in this day and age when I feel like, again, it's it's very risky for a director to make that choice because, you know, when we see when we see that heavy dialogue, it's usually, you know, in a, in a period drama or something, not in a Tarantino, you know, gore fest or, you know, whatever, however people want to describe it, you know, in this in this action film. It's so, and it, and it just makes those, when the action does finally show up, I always tell people, I'm like, when that shootout does happen, it means a lot more. When Pumpkin and Honey Bunny at the beginning of Pulp Fiction, when they stand up and they, you know, they've got their guns fired on everybody, it sticks out because you've gotten a chance for the past five minutes of them talking You've gotten a chance to know them. You know their dynamic. You know why they're doing this. And so then when they do go through with it, you're like, whoa, what? It's like it's like it's a slap in the face. It's like it the movie really starts and it does not stop. And you mentioned he has those memorable scenes of gore and violence. But again, it goes back to with Django Unchained. Yes, everybody mm. remembers the scene where Jamie Foxx just literally just you know, wipes out everybody there near the end of Django Unchained. But so many people go back to the dining room scene where there's a conversation with Christoph Waltz, with Leonardo DiCaprio, and you have those top-notch actors really mm-hmm. just just commanding the scene with the dialogue that's been given to them by Tarantino. And that's mm-hmm. just almost as memorable as the scene itself with Jamie Foxx doing so much damage throughout. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos. Don't touch that dial. Wait, do, do people still use dials? Rob McCallum Films is back with a vengeance. Power of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which chronicles the ultimate 80s billion dollar franchise, Masters of the Universe. See exclusive interviews and hear untold stories from the people responsible for creating the world of Eternia, a place full of magic and science, and learn about the craft of creating action figures and animation. Power of Grayskull is just one of our many projects at Rob McCallum Films. And Tarantino has this, this great habit of he... It's, it's, and it's a very like Hitchcockian thing to do to point the camera at somebody and see their reaction. And Jamie Foxx in that, in, at that section of the movie, he doesn't talk that much, but you know exactly how he feels exactly. the entire time. Every time, you know, Leo like looks at him and then it, it, it cuts to Jamie Foxx's reaction. And, you know, he's like chewing, like his chewing gets like a little bit slower every time. And I'm like, Oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> it is still, to me, one of the best movies in his allotment that's there. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that credit goes to Jamie Foxx, because who played the role brilliantly. I still don't know how Will Smith turned that down, but yeah, that's another, that's another conversation <laughs> for another day on that one. So. 
I mean, that, that was just, uh, you know, a great performance by him and yeah, yeah. just so many others that you want to talk about because he's able to get these great A-list actors. That's something there you, that you see each and every time that it's once upon a time in Hollywood is no less of that as far as getting A-list actors yeah. and actresses in there. And just, you know, it's seemingly as we are drawn in as an audience, Hollywood and the industry is drawn in by his work as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, this goes back to his entire library. I want to ask you your favorite scene. If you have one in particular that stands out, you mentioned one already. That's a a truly, truly incredible scene. But if you have another in mind, uh, in far as one of his past and previous films. I'm trying to think what was, what would probably be another great scene. And actually I think it's, I think it's one that isn't, as as cited as much um there's a scene in the hateful eight where samuel l jackson's character they're in the cabin and he's goading the old confederate general and it's just and it's again it's that it's that it's that masterfully done um dialogue driven scene where he just, he sticks the knife. You you watch the moment where he sticks the knife in, metaphorically, <laughs> which you can't always say in a Tarantino film. Yes. But metaphorically, sticks that knife in and you watch him twist it the entire time and does not blink until he gets that opportunity to be like, now you're dead. He's like, I wanted you, I want you to, I want you to get angry. I want you to be mad at me. And I just, I don't know. It's just, there was something about watching that scene that just like, just kept me just mesmerized the entire time. Were you disappointed that it didn't have the reception that you feel and many other Tarantino fans feel that it should have had? Because unfortunately it did not perform as well as some of his other movies. It did not. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like people... Again, I feel like it's just because of this day and age. I feel like it is, I feel like back in the day when Reservoir Dogs was done, having two people in a room for the entire movie and then it being told through flashbacks, that was okay. People were okay with watching movies that way. But I mean, when you have Endgame as your number one movie <laughs> release you know, in the world now, and there's so much going on in those movies to say like, you're gonna watch this entire movie and everybody's gonna be in a cabin and they're just gonna be talking. And occasionally someone will die every like 20 minutes. I feel like that was a risk for him in this day and age. I feel like I was happy that he stayed true to it, but it also made me excited because uh, Hateful Eight and Reservoir Dogs, those were the two movies that he actually said like could be transferable to plays. To stage productions, and I and I guess I heard about it before Hateful Eight, so I kept watching it with that in mind. Of if I'm watching this on stage, this is something that you know I feel like in a very small, intimate theater, and you have these great actors doing their thing, you're going to be invested the entire time. I feel like Tarantino when he made that statement about he's only going to make ten movies. I think that he also realizes that his style isn't meant to last very long that eventually people will mainstream audiences will be like well is this it and i feel like it's you know if leave while you're on top 
I mean, I would I would love for it, for him to continue making movies, but I think it is starting to get to a point in time when uh, those movies, movies like The Hateful Eight, just aren't going to do as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you when it comes to The Hateful Eight and Reservoir Dogs being seen as something you could put onto a play format. In fact, when uh, the news broke that the script had leaked for The Hateful Eight, and Tarantino had said he wants to cancel it. He's not going to film it. He actually did a walkthrough with several yeah. of the actors. I, I remember on stage and they read through it because that was going to be the only time people were going to be able to see it. And then he ends up actually filming it anyways, <laughs> just to spite people, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it didn't do so bad. It's, you know, still earned $155 million worldwide off of a less than $50 million budget. So, mm -hmm. it was, you know, it's pretty good. I mean, it's still keeps people happy when it concerns the big wigs up on top. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just want to ask your thoughts on once upon mm -hmm. a time in Hollywood, which is the ninth movie from him. I want to ask you your thoughts because I know you're excited to go see it. Absolutely. What, are your thoughts, <laughs> what are your thoughts on when you sit down and what are you expecting or can you expect something when it comes to a Tarantino film? Because you have said so much as far as your feelings on his future already. And the fact that you think that his style may be perceived by a general overarching audience in a certain fashion. And I don't disagree with you on that because his style to an extent, as far as the twist, the turns, things of that nature, we now mm -hmm. we're now watching movies on left and right now that are supposed to have a twist and a turn and we're now expecting it. So it's not something we really want to see anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Tarantino's style that could be something a lot of people could get tired of. And that's a shame if that's the case, but that is a real possibility. Yeah. But when you sit down and watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is there anything that you're looking forward to seeing? Is there, there are any real expectations? And what do you want to get out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I guess what I want to see is almost uh, something similar to Pulp Fiction. It feels, it has that kind of like feeling to it where we could possibly get multiple storylines. I know that the focus is going to be on Leo and I know it's gonna be on Brad Pitt, but I would love to kind of see these two stories. I would love to see like, you know, you have Leo's side of the story and then you have Brad's side of the story and you see them you, like, you know, just as, as masterfully as Quentin Tarantino can do where, you know, in Pulp Fiction, he, he brings you in with a diner scene takes you away, you have no idea why that even happened, and then you're brought right back to it. And you're like, okay, this is how it all ties together. I would love for something to, uh, I would love to see something like that with, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I also feel like this is gonna be a bit of an homage to those classic films that Tarantino himself idolizes, which I'm so excited about because you know that he's gonna do it justice because anytime he tries to do any sort of homage to something, whether it is a Western, whether it is Kung Fu, black exploitation, he just has this way of, he does his research. This is, a, this is a man who's very clearly like, he's passionate about it and he understands it. And because of that, it makes me appreciate it even more so. I'm excited about seeing Leo having this lead role in a Tarantino film because I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, Leo's been wanting to do more stuff with Tarantino, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you could tell he's obviously enjoyed his time doing Django Unchained. He obviously mm -hmm. enjoyed, you know, doing more with him. And he understands, I think, like everybody else, I'm sure he gets more inside than we do on it. But right. he, he knows exactly for sure if or close to it, if this will truly be one of the final times that he'll be able to go ahead and work with Tarantino in some form or fashion. So I think he probably just jumped at the chance. And that's why I think you saw a lot of A-listers again just reach out and want to be a part of this project with Brad Pitt and so many mm -hmm. other individuals that are that are coming onto it. Margot Robbie, you know, we yeah. didn't even talk about her storyline as Sharon Tate coming 50 years after Sharon Tate's real life death and, and mm -hmm. as part of the Manson murders. That part of it, you're right. There, there's so many things that could go in and blend in as far as the movie is concerned that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in seeing and how it's portrayed I've said before with other guests talking about Tarantino that I am looking forward to seeing life in Hollywood in 1969 because that was the year that I was born. I was okay. I, I was in diapers at one point in time while I was being, you know, if, if you want to put a relation to that. But yeah, just to me, that whole era fascinates me as far as how it, it was back at that time. So because I have no conscience of it, no no understanding of it, because you know I wasn't uh, even old enough to fathom what was going on. So <laughs> I'm curious to see how he perceives that era, how he reshaped Hollywood, how he redesigned parts of actual Hollywood today in order to go ahead and film it. Because he was a very young man at the time, so he he was a boy at the time that 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 you know the whole thing took place as well. So I'm I'm curious to see how he envisions that era and time. Obviously, seeing somebody portraying Bruce Lee it always interests me as well. How well that will come across, but yeah, it just it's looking like a great setup for him again, and something a lot of people are going to talk about, hopefully for the weeks and months to come. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned his future. We're going back to one more thing on his future. Yeah, uh, he's talked about Star Trek. If he does get that opportunity, that being the last one. If not, he's talked about period tenth movie. He's done. He's out or 60 years old, which in this case, he, as you know, he takes four <laughs> years between films. Could not. Right. You know, that might be uh, closer <laughs> than we think. Do you really think 10 will be it, whether it's a Star Trek or something else? Do you really think that'll be it? I, I know you mentioned that you, he would, you think he would be worried about what audiences perceived as his style, maybe mm -hmm. waning and getting old. But do you really think, to, you know, that he will not be offered great, great opportunities that he just couldn't afford to pass up? I think he, I think they will, I think studios will try to bring him back, especially, you know, in this very nostalgia driven world that we live in, you know, putting Tarantino's name on something on another film past 10. I mean, I would go see it, <laughs> you know, in a heartbeat. I feel, I just feel like Tarantino's the type of person, and, he, and he's shown this, he's the type of person who will kind of stick to his guns. He really is in it more so for the film itself. And if he feels like he can make a, a you know, an awesome film, he's going to do it. And if he doesn't feel like he can do it, or if it kind of falls by the wayside, he's not going to try to revisit it or revamp it. He's going to let it go, you know, he's going to let it go by like, uh, like he did Double V with the Vega brothers, you know, he wanted to make that movie. And matter of fact, I had a dream. He did make that movie and it was awesome, <laughs> but that's never good. But he's never, he's never going to go back to that kind of like with kill bill volume three and potentially doing that. But 
you know, there could be a, I think he's okay with not revisiting it if he gets Star Trek. Because a Star Trek, and 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 the thing is with the Star Trek thing, I have mixed feelings about it. Just because it wouldn't be a... It wouldn't be his I, own property. It wouldn't be his own creation. Yeah, and I think that's where he excels. I think it's it's the fact that it is his very distinct voice. And not that he couldn't bring it out in Star Trek. Um, my fear would be, again, is it something that a main at a modern audience, a mainstream modern audience would like and appreciate? Because I feel like he would have several nods to the original film more so than the the reboot did. Well, um, you got to remember he worked in that video store, so he has probably a lot of fond memories of Star Trek. I know, I know, but again, it's it's like I don't know. I feel like people. They would expect one thing from a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie, and it's like, no, this is going to be a lot of dialogue. There might be like a few shootouts. There's probably going to be a little gore in there. But for the most part, it's going to feel like an old school Star Trek, either a TV show or an old or an old Star Trek movie. Like you said, because he does have that film store background. Yeah. And it would be an R-rated film. He's already said that point blank that it would be an R-rated film, and which we would expect from Quentin Tarantino, of course. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you about your show here, but I want to ask one thing more thing I saw on The Hollywood Reporter, and that is their determination in an article, it was an opinion article, that mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio, going back to Leonardo, that he is considered by them as the last movie star meaning someone who could propel a movie on his own with his own name and things of that nature. I disagree. I think Mm. there's still two or three out there that can propel a movie. I think The Rock, I think, is one of them. I think there's maybe a couple others you could say that. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. I I think there are few and far between. You mentioned The Rock. It's kind of like with the WWE. I'm a huge wrestling fan. I cite it all the time. And when you look at, you know, the WWE and you look at like, you know, their their company, they're trying to build that next Hulk Hogan. Right? There used to be a time when if Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan was like on a bat on like a box of cereal. So it has yes. nothing to do with wrestling. And yet you'll buy it because Hulk Hogan is his he's on it. We look at the rock. You know, we all, we, you know, people have that joke where like, oh, the rock comes in when a franchise is dying and then he saves it. It's not completely true, but it kind of is. If he comes into a franchise, guess what? Your ticket sales are going to go up because he's attached to it. I definitely can see that with Leo. I think the problem that Hollywood has, and it's the same thing that the current product of WWE has, is that they have not taken the time to really build up a star, per se. You know what I mean? Like I feel like there's a lot of young, hungry actors who are in Hollywood right now. You look at like Michael B. Jordan comes to mind. You look at someone like Donald Glover, Mahershala Ali, you know, and, and, and you know what, actually that I, I would say he's at that point now where he can be in a movie and you are going to go see it. I feel like if someone sees, oh, Mahershala Ali's in this movie, I'm going to go see it. Viola Davis, Meryl Streep. Oh, they're in that movie. Oh, I'm going to go see it. Why? Because it's probably going to be amazing. Anne Hathaway is going to be in it? Okay, I'll probably go see it. But I think Hollywood needs to take special care and say, like, who are the next crop of 
stars who we can sell a movie just on their name. Tom Holland, I think he's next in line. He's gonna be somebody who you're like, oh yeah, he was Spider-Man. But then you're also gonna like immediately cite 12 other movies that he did where he did spectacular work. Because I mean, what he did in, in Spider-Man, just giving it that character gravitas in his, in his last movie, give that kid some time and maybe like a couple of years away from Marvel, he'll be fine. He'll be that next big star where you're like, Tom Holland's next film, whatever it is, I'm going to go see it. I agree with you. He is probably the next big name in Hollywood. I saw him in a trailer, I think, with another Benedict Cumberbatch film playing Tesla. Yeah, he's he's still playing other roles outside of the big starring movie. Yeah, he's hopefully the you know the, the Uncharted movie will come out a year from now, and hopefully that'll finally uh, take him over the top as far as something outside of Spider-Man's realm and and mm-hmm. other projects he's taking. Although he's, I was watching the other day some trailers when he we went to go see a movie, and he's in like three different voiceover roles for different animated films. Yeah, so <laughs> hopefully he won't get too stuck into that. But again, hey, it's payday. He's cashing in. I can't right. blame him. When you're talking about the WWE, I cannot uh, agree with you more because there is a style right there. There's a booking style. There's a there's a type of uh, ideal there that I, I'm just not in love with, even though I mm-hmm. follow wrestling every day. Yep. Still to this day, <laughs> since I was a young man. And we could talk about that all day. The only thing <laughs> I'll say is I'm hoping Tarantino does come back after his 10th film, but I hope it won't be a Terry Funk style where he's you know having a retirement movie every every year or two years just to come back just to come back but i will say this it's just been so great talking to you and you're right when it comes to wwe and it's, it, but some of that's organic and when it comes to how people are portrayed how a movie star how a wrestling star is portrayed i've always said when a general audience takes notice of you that's when you're doing well that's when yeah. you're at your top as at whatever profession that you're in you know, when it comes to The Rock, when it was in the WWE, when it was Steve Austin around that time, yeah. now with Leonardo DiCaprio, when your name is known to a general audience around the water cooler at work, or mm-hmm. when, you know, not just to people like us who are very into pro wrestling and very right. into very into movies and things of that nature. If you're just with people that are eating at restaurants and they talk about, oh, DiCaprio was great in that movie, or mm-hmm. The Rock was great in that movie, then you get to the point where people are saying your name constantly, and that's when you get over, and that's when you become that movie star, that wrestling star, whatever. Yeah. And and I think that that's a great case, and I think you just really just had a lot of great words and sounded off very well on it. And I, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I've got one last question for you, my friend. Uh, go ahead. I'm ready. <laughs> Why is Popcorn Prattle the show you need to go to for those who are into movies and just really like a great podcast as well? I mean, the thing that I, I really take pride with our our particular our brand, because again, huge wrestling fan, so I, I always look at it kind of the same vein as a more successful Vince McMahon. I always tell people, I'm like, look, if you want to have those moments where you're just talking to your friend and you want to nerd out about films, Popcorn Prattle's the one to listen to. A lot of film talk podcasts. I mean, they're great. Don't get me wrong. I've, I mean, I've listened to a number of them, but the one thing that I, I like about ours is it definitely feels just like, and, and I've heard this from other people. It feels like, you know, you're just sitting there listening to a bunch of friends, just talk about movies and nerd out about it. And also 
we try to keep it positive mainly because you know politics aside there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world it's not going away you know we're not saying you know ignore it but for the next hour two hours in our 100th episode almost three hours you know let that stuff just melt off melt away and freak out about like you know should Wesley Snipes have been Blade? You know, like freak out about are these Disney remakes really, should they be done or should they just be, uh, or should they just wait for them to go on Disney Plus? It's silly stuff, but I feel like when we allow ourselves to get worked up about silly stuff, it makes life so much easier to get through. And that's And that's what we do. We are a bunch of nerds who get worked up over silly stuff. And then we always tell each other, we're like, once we finish recording an episode, we're like, you know what? I feel like I can get through the week a little bit easier now. And I'm hoping that when people listen to our show, they go through the same thing. That they're like, ah, I got worked up in the car over over something so dumb and like, it doesn't even matter. I can I can do this. I can I can tackle whatever it is that's coming up next to me when I walk into those doors, whether I'm going to school or I'm going to work or just coming home even. So, yeah. You're missing out on a great show in Popcorn Prattle, and you need to catch it today. It is available, like I said, on all major podcast platforms, including Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, the whole nine yards. Once again, it's Popcorn Prado. If you just, like you said, you like a good time in listening to a podcast that just goes ahead with some guys just talking some great stuff about movies and, and pop culture as a whole. I'll tell you what, Marcus, it's been great having you on the air. I'd love to have you come back at any point in time that you choose. You know, you got a subject you want to talk about, or if I reach yeah. out to you with a good subject, just like I said, it was just truly awesome having you today as part of the Pop Culture Cosmos. If you're tired of sifting through flea markets for rare and unique games, we can help. Retro City Games in Henderson, Nevada, only five minutes from the Las Vegas Strip, has all your favorite gaming staples, classics, and a wide selection of rare games with new stuff always appearing on our shelves. Come in and chat with Nicole or Doug about your love of games and watch as they help you complete your collection or find your childhood favorite. And don't forget, Retro City Games loves trade-ins. So if you have any Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega, Xbox, PlayStation, or even PC games, come in and visit Retro City Games today. Welcome to the new metropolis of gaming, Retro City Games. And we're back to close out the show. This is the Pop Culture Cosmos. If you need a listing of where we're at because we're being played all around the world seven days a week, you just got to check out our Facebook page, Pop Culture Cosmos. You see a listing right there of all the radio stations that we're on and many of our podcast options as well. I want to give a big welcome to Crooked Drive Radio. I cannot thank Crooked Drive Radio and the listeners enough for allowing us on the air. We truly appreciate being on their radio network and want to give a big, big shout out to Pat Morrow for allowing us to be on their station. Plus, also, if you need a podcast outlet, hey, Spotify. Everybody knows Spotify. And if you listen to us, just check out the Pop Culture Cosmos channel on Spotify. All right, my friend. Before we head on out, got to ask you, are you excited for The Boys, which just came out last week on Amazon Prime? It's a story of antiheroes that are after superheroes, which unfortunately aren't the best or nicest superheroes around. This show is getting a lot of critical praise. It's getting a lot of good word, and it could be Amazon Prime's next hit, The Boys. 
I'm actually really excited to watch this one. I just put it on my Amazon Prime queue moments before we got on here, but I, I, I didn't really know a lot about it. Like it, it was a gra- I know it was a graphic novel, but I, I never really paid attention to it. I thought when I saw the trailer for it, I thought it was just like a knockoff, like an inappropriate knockoff of superhero shows and movies. But the more I dug into it, the more I kind of became fascinated with this concept of who watches The Watchmen, essentially. You know, you have all these superheroes, empowered people, but no one ever talks about ego in that environment. So who keeps these superheroes in line when one of them, what they imagine is best for everyone else, isn't best for everyone else? So it looks really cool, and I, I am excited to start watching it. I just I, I guess I needed a little more history on it before it fully garnered my interest, but now I'm interested. And I'm going to be watching it this week myself. Hopefully, I'll be able to go ahead and share our thoughts by the end of the week on our PCC Multiverse on it. But yes, it is The Boys. It looks like it's going to be a big hit for Amazon Prime. And it actually has gotten so much advanced good word on it. It's already gotten an early season renewal for season two. And this happened even before the show started up on Amazon. So there's a lot of good word going on it. And you know what? I have to compare this to DC's Doom Patrol, which got a lot of good word. Swamp Thing, which, I don't know, got a lot of good word, but unfortunately not at the right people at DC. And then also the Umbrella Academy. We've started seeing all these anti-hero shows come out on streaming services this year. The Watchmen is coming later this year to HBO as well. So all these anti-hero series are coming around, and it looks like it's going to be a battle between them but the boys has a chance to be the best of them and i'm going to tell you for sure whether or not by friday on the pcc multiverse and if you have any thoughts on the boys that just came out this past weekend right on amazon prime are you excited for it have you already seen some episodes share us your thoughts popculturecosmos at yahoo.com plus also as well popculturecosmos humanica media and game source on facebook twitter and instagram as well well, my friend, it's been a great episode. I truly want to thank Marcus Sally from Popcorn Prattle for taking the time to speak to us. Make sure to catch his great show, Popcorn Prattle. If you're into films like we are, got to catch it today on all your major podcast outlets. Any last thoughts on the way out? Yeah, there's been a lot of whispers going on post-Comic-Con that they might be renewing Batman Beyond for another season. So they had season one, two, and three. And they had the, the movie Return of the Joker. And then if that was successful, they're going to continue on to another season. But we might get that next season according to if the Blu-ray box set sells well coming out of Comic-Con here. Do you have any interest in Batman Beyond? That series always fascinated me because the series officially ended in an episode of Justice League Unlimited where we find out that Terry McGinnis is a clone of Bruce Wayne. And I don't know, it just we, we never really got the ending that deserved because it was a very rich world full of very vibrant characters, you know, in comparison to the 90s Batman that it's a spinoff of. And I just, I would love to see more of it. I have seen some of it, but it's not been a high priority. It hasn't caught with me the way it's caught with you. I still think with the HBO Max looking for all this type of extra content that they need that I think this would go well with it or the DC streaming service because you see what happens now with DC's Doom Patrol that's now going to be on both those options. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about Batman Beyond Season 5. But you know what, my friend? When you announce anything in your DC at Comic-Con and you got totally trashed by Marvel, 
it really just ended up being a whisper about anything relating to DC. They barely even did anything at Comic-Con. And you know what? That's just like waving the white flag, which is sad because it just seems like you take one step forward with Aquaman and then you take two steps back. There's some things going on behind the scenes, and I imagine that they're going to be making some announcements here pretty soon. No Joker, no Birds of Prey, no Wonder Woman 84. That's all I'm saying. So for Josh Peterson, this is Gerald Glassford. It's another beautiful day in paradise right here in the Pop Culture Cosmos. We thank you for listening. And don't go searching for Bigfoot. You might only find a souvenir store instead. And here's hoping you have yourself a great day. My name is Quoth. I tread paths by moonlight that others fear to speak of during the day. I've talked to gods, loved women, and written songs that make the minstrels weep. You may have heard of me. Join Mandy and her friends as they explore Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle. You can find us at casterquest.com or on the ESO Network. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Tangent Bound Network. Let your voice be heard. TangentBoundNetwork.com Thanks so much for downloading the Pop Culture Cosmos and stay tuned as more great podcasts are on the way. Thanks again for listening to us here at the Pop Culture Cosmos.